Today's Bible reading is Psalm 130. Out of the depths I cry to you, Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, so that we can, with reverence, serve you. I wait for the Lord, my whole being waits, and in his word I put my hope. I wait for the Lord, more than watchmen wait for the morning. More than watchmen wait for the morning. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. Thank you very much for that reading. I think that was a good enough sermon. <laughs> Welcome, my name's Jonathan, or Jono. This is my usual service. It's nice to see some friendly and familiar faces. And I just wanted to say, don't underestimate what an encouragement it is for those of you who are here each week to see those faces. And good on you for those tuning in at home as well. I'm going to pray. Lord, as a sinner speaking to sinners, I ask that you glorify your name in this time through your Holy Spirit. And through the words that the blood of Jesus speaks on our behalf. Amen. I was listening to Clayton's sermon last week and he mentioned, I'm not one of the pastors here. No, I'm not either. It struck me because it made me consider, who am I? Who am I here to preach to you? And I don't have much to tell you apart from I'm a sinner who's been gripped by the gospel. And when I say the gospel, I mean the good news. That God rescues sinners and that he's paid a great price for them. Let's get into the psalm. A song of ascents. Now many of you may know already what this means. A song of ascents was a song that the Jews would sing on their way up to Jerusalem. Jerusalem, where the temple was, the temple, not just a building, but God's dwelling place on earth. This is a song the Jews were encouraged to sing as they made their way towards that temple, that dwelling place, and they considered how it was that they would be prepared to meet with God, to join him in his dwelling place. Now, I know it's not the same, it's, it's different, but maybe something similar we, can, we could uh, consider is that as we gather here each Sunday, as we come together 
and hopefully consider this more than just the physical filling of a room, but rather the fulfillment of Christ's words that where I'm gathered, there I am with you. That this is actually, actually both a physical and a spiritual gathering together. Now the psalm, the actual words. Out of the depths I cry to you, Lord. What do you think of when you hear the depths? For me, I think of somewhere dark, somewhere lonely, somewhere God-forsaken, perhaps a bit damp, a deep well, somewhere undesirable, none at yeah, somewhat undesirable, no doubt. A consuming place, a constrictive place. Perhaps a pit or a snare. We're not told for certain. And I think this is a blessing to us. It could be that the psalmist finds himself sinking beneath the waves, like Jonah. And as he sinks to the bottom, with what feels like his last breath, he cries out. Into the depths. We're not told, and like I said, I think it's a blessing to us. Because if we were told exactly, we might say, Ah, that's the psalmist. That's him. I have, that's not somewhere I've been. But as it is, a wide net is cast. I think all of us can reflect and hopefully say, Ah, the depths. Yeah, I know the depths. I know the depths. I've been there also. For we all find ourselves in the depths, don't we? Dark places. We stumbled into like them like an animal in a pit or a careless or carelessly wandered into dark places we knew we shouldn't go. Perhaps it's through wrongs done to us and we've found ourselves in the depths of unforgiveness. And so I could go on, but hopefully there is enough here and enough said for each of us to be able to say, ah, the depths. Yes, I've been there. What next? And so we move on from the, psalm, from the depths to the psalmist's cry. He cries out, I cry to you. The strong have no need to cry out, but the weak. The weak have every reason to. The weak cry out to the strong. Many will never admit that they are weak and they'll never receive the help of the strong. For it takes humility to rely on someone stronger than you and to call out for help when you find yourself in the depths. And there's none stronger than the Lord. There's a lot here to reflect on in regards to the posture we take before God. We cannot approach Him proudly, strongly, with our belt of victories and our achievements. For it says in other places, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. He is a humble man, though no one else cries out, yet he will. Reminds me of um, when Jesus was, was walking through town, and a man saw him passing by, a blind man. And he yelled out, Son of David, have mercy on me. And all those around him said, shh, be quiet, don't bother him. And he yelled, it says he yelled out even louder, son of David, have mercy on me. 
And Jesus turned to him. How important it is to, re- to recognize humanity's weakness as a whole, but our own personal recognition of weakness is also important, that we might cry out when we find ourselves in the depths. The last thing I want to say about the psalmist's cry is that it seems to be a continual thing. It's a response he's decided upon when he finds himself in the depths. I cry to you, Lord. Or I cried to you, Lord. It does not seem to be just a one-off thing and then having given up. It is as if he has resolved what his response will be and in the depths he cries. Are you in the depths? Have you cried to the Lord? Continue to cry. You will run out of tears before God runs out of tenderness. Consider Abraham's illegitimate child, Ishmael, to Hagar. And when she was sent away, and she went and sat under a tree to watch her son die. She didn't want to watch her son die. But it says that the boy was heard in heaven, and the Lord answered him. Consider the death of Lazarus. And when Jesus saw their weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit, and he wept also. Do not give up. Though you find yourself in the depths, continue to cry. I really think this is one of the main thrusts of this psalm, to not give up. But it's also important, and I think perhaps this is uh, the most important point, it's about who we cry to. It says, I cry to you, Lord. To you, to you, Lord. Now, perhaps you've found yourself in the depths and you've cried to many lords. You've phoned your mother, your father. You've asked your friend. Made your, made your plans and set about them with great ferocity. Maybe you've uh, read a great deal about the problem that avails you. Increased in knowledge. Perhaps you've called on the greatest minds, the wealthiest persons, rolled every die, Devoted yourself relentlessly to a solution, given away all you have, hidden yourself away, but not done that one thing that the psalmist does in the depths, and that's to cry to the Lord. The Lord of heaven and earth, the creator of all things, watcher of mankind, the one who can push back the waves, who can still the seas, melt the mountains, and yet the compassion and gentleness to hear a weary heart speak. There's one God, one Lord, and one Saviour. Out of the depths, Lord, I cry to you. The next verses. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. It's enough to be heard by the Lord. It's enough to be heard by him. There's a difference between being heard and being answered. And the difference is the burden of responsibility. Let me explain, if I may. If the Lord was to do my bidding every time I called on him, (laughs) I'd be back in the depths no sooner had I got out of them. If it was my decision-making that led me into them, it seems reasonable that left to my own devices I'd find myself my way back in there. 
The trouble with us humans is really our circumstances and most often our wills. It must be remembered that our, our greatest shortcomings aren't our abilities, but rather our willfulness. We're willingly led astray, willingly deceived, unwilling to listen so, much, so often, unwilling to obey. And I won't go to great lengths here, but when we are in the depths, we don't just need rescuing from our conditions. We need rescuing from ourselves. We need res rescuing from our rebellious nature. So it is wise and a great benefit to us that we can call on God and be heard. And he then can decide best how to handle our situation. If we have made ourselves grubby with sin, the answer is not a, grubbing, a scrubbing brush and some soap and to scrub ourselves clean. The answer is to call out to the Lord, to the one who can wash the inside of the cup and the outside. The one who can make us clean on the inside and the outside. So it's enough to be heard from the Lord and leave the rescuing and the finding in his capable hands. And we will learn that he is a marvelous rescuer and a mighty saviour. The psalmist says, hear my cry for mercy, for mercy. So we get an understanding into what is availing the psalmist, what his problem is. He's transgressed in some way. Sin has been a snare for him. Though the prize looked good, he's fallen in a pit. The leaves gave way and he's ended out in the depths. Mercy is such a powerful word. When I was younger, I used to play this game. It was called mercy. And you get your hands and you interlock them with somebody else's. And then it begins. <laughs> a grappling. You wrestle and you twist until one of you is in danger of a joint being put out of place if you're playing with a sibling. And... <laughs> um, that's the moment that you cry for mercy. Mercy. Have mercy. And hopefully they do. Mercy is such a wonderful word because you must be in a defeated position in order to require it. When you're ill-deserving of any good and well-deserving of every evil, you are a perfect candidate for mercy. Mercy cannot be earned. If mercy were attainable, it's no longer mercy. Mercy is not shown to, to the righteous, but to sinners. The rich do not need their debts paid. It's the poor who need the wealth of another. The wealthy consider how they would like to be dressed, whereas the poor take what they can get. And praise the Lord that, what, that as Christians... We are dressed in finer clothes than we could ever purchase. You cannot wait to deserve mercy or you never will. Do not call on God once you feel yourself clean enough. For surely you are deceiving yourself if you attain to it. When you are in the depths of despair, when you even envy the food that pigs eat, having squandered all you have on dirty living, even then call on the Lord for mercy. And I say again, the less deserving you are, the better candidate. You are for it. 
just at this point, I'd like to a little reminder that this psalmist believes in the Lord. And he's, he's encouraging those who are heading up to the temple to sing this song. I don't think this is the first time they would have sung it. This is a song for life. The position of all men. The next verses. If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? We've looked at the sin of one man in the depths. And now, we, now, we, now he um, takes us and reveals to us that his position is actually the position of all men. And I think this is the crux of the first three verses. If we can't identify with the first man, he makes it really clear that his position is all of ours anyway. The severity of our debt, I think, is often underestimated when it talks about a record of sins. Let me explain. Adam and Eve transgressed in regards to a single command. They ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and consider the outcome horrendous. But Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount teaches us much more about the pervasiveness of sin and how it incriminates us, not just in the things that we do, but even the attitudes that we have. Jesus Jesus preaches and says, If a man even looks at a woman other than his wife lustfully, he commits adultery with her in his heart. Someone who calls their brother an idiot is liable to the hells of fire, the the fires of hell. Someone who divorces on false grounds is guilty of murder. Anyone who doesn't do what they are saying is listening to the devil. Jesus goes on, he says, it's nothing special that we love those who love us. And consider covetousness and envy and all that we invest in other than the kingdom of God. I've often found one of the most intimidating ideas that a preacher once shared was the thought that all my inner thoughts could somehow be put on something watchable and listenable and all of Wollongong invited to come listen and watch. It makes me want to hide under under a rock. If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, who could stand? And I hope that, I know that mere words can't convict anybody of sin, but the Holy Spirit can. Let me me, um, give an example, because it reminds me of a time when Jesus was left with no one standing before him. An example from the book of John. Um, The Pharisees brought a woman supposedly caught in adultery. They threw her down at Jesus' feet and said, what do we do with her? And it says, they kept questioning him and he straightened up. And he said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first. Good on you, older ones. 
I think the idea there is that humility, humility in age, until one, only one, until only Jesus was left, with the woman still standing there. The idea here is that none can stand before God, claiming to be without fault, without sin, having never rebelled, except for one, Jesus, the King of glory, who's opened the seal, opened the door, offered his blood for our pardon and his riches for our poverty. But we'll get to that. However, if our sins were dirt and God was to count them, every person would soon be buried six foot under with a growing mountain on top. And I hope that doesn't seem too severe an analogy. But sin, the Bible tells us, is not just the wicked things that we do. It's the good things that we leave left undone. Ooh, that one hurts. The love that we haven't shown. The kindness that we knew we, we, could, we could have gone about and didn't. Because we thought we'd do something else instead. The psalmist recognizes he's a sinner and he recognizes that it's the state of all men. In other words, we've been put in the scales and found wanting. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Everyone does the wrong thing. And so the position of this man, and indeed all men, is that they have incurred a debt against their Creator. Men have been made for a task they've been, that they've left undone and they've gone about doing what they shouldn't. Worse still, we have nothing to pay God back with. There's nothing that we can do in return, nothing that we can give him, and we've ended up in the depths because of our rejection of him. It is the poor who need the wealth of another. It is the weak who need the strength of another. It is the sinner who needs the mercy of God. And a sinner has but one hope. One hope only. Next verses. But with you there is forgiveness, so that we can, with reverence, there's a screen up there too, serve you. Does it... Does anyone know uh, what this picture is, by any chance? Someone say Peter? Yes. All right. Well, my wife was right. <laughs> She's like, I don't know if people will know that straight away. Yeah, it's Peter and the rooster. Um, a sinner's only hope. A forgiving God. How does the psalmist know that God is forgiving? Have you considered that? Have you thought about that? Does the, faith of the, does the faith of the saints gone by sometimes baffle you? When you consider all they know and what we know. So much of my hope, and I assume yours also, rests firmly in Jesus and what we know about and what God's revealed to us through him. Let's consider what the psalmist knew. He knew the patriarchs, the exodus, the law, the promised land, the prophets. Undoubtedly, he was a Bible man. He knew God's word. For how else could he have known that the Lord is forgiving? And if you read the scriptures, it becomes clear 
how we might come to this understanding. As you, deal, as you read about God's dealings with mankind, you realize that he's righteous, he's concerned with justice, and yet compassionate and forgiving. I mentioned Adam and Eve earlier, and if you think about their disobedience, and they get sent out of the garden, but what does God do before they leave? He kills an animal and he clothes them. An act of kindness and compassion. Peter, our beloved Peter, who though he denied Jesus three times, would be forgiven. And that forgiven man would be the rock upon which Jesus builds his church. There's still, there's a lot that could also uh, be said about the Israelites and the Passover, the shedding of blood on the lintel, the judgment of the Egyptians and the sparing of them, his provision for Israel in the desert, though they were stubborn and rebellious, the law and the shedding of the blood for the atonement of, of sin. That's nothing to say about God's constant warnings and entreatments and declarations of his great love for Israel through the prophets. With God, there is forgiveness. And people who know their Bible know it well. How much more us today? When we consider that God, his own son, not sparing, was willingly hung on a cross that he might forgive us and punish him. With God, there is forgiveness. It is not always so with men. It cannot always be said about a man, go to him, he'll forgive you. But with God, there is forgiveness of sins. And note what this forgiveness produces. Reverent service. When Noah saw the world destroyed by great waters, what did he do when his feet were put on dry ground? He built an altar and he worshipped the Lord. As I mentioned before, the Apostle Peter and how his denying Jesus and being forgiven turned him into a wonderful servant of the gospel. Consider Paul as well, an enemy of Christians, and yet through God's forgiveness became one of its greatest servants. Pardon inspires more reverence than the dread of punishment can. God judges men and they're gone. The dead don't worship God. They don't sing his praises, but rather the living. Forgiveness humbles us to know that we have not received what we deserve. And whilst judgment is good, the scriptures tell us mercy triumphs over judgment, especially when it comes to service. It is the love of God shown in his forgiveness of sinners that changes hearts from enemies into friends, from rebels into servants. And God is worth waiting for. Next verses. I wait for the Lord. My whole being waits, and in his word I put my hope. I wait for the Lord, more than watchmen wait for the morning. More than watchmen wait for the morning. The repetition there is, we do it similar sometimes. We repeat ourselves to accentuate a point. It's like a great exclamation mark. I wait for you, Lord, more than watchmen wait for the morning. I wait. The scriptures are very honest. There's no avoidance of difficult things like a person's waiting amidst difficulty in the depths. 
But a man's waiting does not mean that God has not heard. Consider Job, who suffered greatly. And he waited in his suffering. But it was not because the Lord was not listening or awake or paying attention. Because the Lord would eventually speak. And we know he was listening because he would rebuke Job's friends for their careless words. He knew. He was there. But Job had to wait. And the psalmist waits. Are you waiting? How does the psalmist wait? With a singleness of purpose, with all his eggs in one basket, he's placed his bets and gone all in. It says, my whole being waits, and in his word I hope. Now a lot could be said about the word in which we hope. The prophets, the patriarchs, God's wonderful redemptive deeds throughout history, Christ, his life, his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension. Then the apostles. But let us this morning just say God's word is worth hoping in. For all his words have proved, have proved true though men have had to wait to see their fulfillment. But the coming of Christ is enough to say that God will fulfill his word at any cost, his own son not sparing. Like a watchman, how are we to wait then? Like a man who has stayed awake all night and and the rising of the sun means he gets to go to bed. More than a watchman for the morning. And this is a meaningful example. For the watchman is eager for rest. Are you tired from your striving? In need of rest? Wait for the Lord. Hope in God for rest from your work. Don't get your faith backwards. The yoke of Jesus Christ is not a whip across our backs. He may have a difficult task for you, a far place to go. He may ask of you all of your worldly possessions. But he genuinely has your good in mind. And as he said to Abram, when he said, go from your home, he promised to Abraham, you go and I go too. And isn't that his promise to us also? You go and I go too. Together. With the Lord, to have the Lord is, is better. <laughs> I That's not a point I mean to have to read. <laughs> it just, it's, it's just true. It's better to be without everything and have the Lord than to have everything and be without Him. His presence is not benefited from a divided affection. That is to say, you're not better off to have the Lord and many things. Whilst those many things are received, thankfully, it's good, great. But if they distract you from your devotion to Christ, they make you poorer and not richer. God is joy. He is goodness personified. God is love. Better to be hung on a cross in in obedience to the Father than to sit on an earthly throne of disobedience. Wait for him more than the watchman for the morning. Wait for him like a hungry man for his food. Wait for him like a thirsty man for something to drink. 
Wait for him like a tired man for his rest. Wait for him more than a watchman for the morning. Wait for him like a sinner in need of mercy. When you see the Son of Man coming down in the clouds from glory, all your hopes will be fulfilled if all your hope is in him. He is joy. He is peace. He is truth. He is eternal life. He is mercy. He is Lord. He is water that the thirsty man desires. He is food for the hungry and mercy for the sinner, healing for the broken, rest for the weary. He knows you're tired. He's heard your cry. Wait for him. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. In Romans, we, um, Paul writes, Hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. There are many things about God that we've never seen, never heard before, find difficult to understand. But if anything, this is even more reason to hope in him, because he's not like us. If he was like us, we wouldn't have the grounds to hope in him the way that we do. For example, man, everything, with man everything has a beginning and an end, a lifespan, a time span. But God is forever, no beginning, no end. He was, he is, he always will be. For man, everything that is made is made out of something that's already, already created. But God made everything out of nothing. For man, love can be fickle and dry up on the, ra- and dry up on the road like rain, rushing down the gutters, taking the easiest route, and then burning up in the, in the heat of the sun. But with God is unfailing love. Love that does not quit, does not stop, does not give up, will flow upstream if it has to. Indeed, it has been said that there is nothing in all of creation, powers, angels, trials, dangers, even death, that can separate us from the love of God. When a person forgives you, they might forget and treat you terribly again. That's if they forgive you. They might not even forgive you, but keep you at arm's length until you can pay what you owe. But with God is full redemption. That is full payment, paid in full, as the saying goes. For those who hope in him, though your sins be a mountain of dirt above you, the Lord sends a strong wind to blow them all away and never call them to mind again. For those who hope in him, your sins are six feet of dirt pinning you down, but the Lord is a strong man who reaches in and pulls you out of all of them. Full redemption means debt paid. And these two things are so beautifully married in the blood of Jesus. The blood spilled and the full price paid. The blood spilled and unfailing love proclaimed. Hope in God, for he's not a man that will fail you, but he's the Lord with whom is unfailing love and full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. An application, something to go home with. My hope is that you'll walk out of here, not with things to do on your mind, but with this thought, 
He has done it. It is done. Hallelujah. He has done it. He himself will redeem me from all my sins. Because who is Israel but God's chosen people? And what is the church apart from God's chosen people? For it is the forgiveness of God that turns sinners into saints, rebels into sons, blasphemers into God-reverers. I think one of the most dangerous sins in our lives is self-reliance. Or perhaps it's just I. I found it the most difficult of tasks to rely on God alone. Have you ever considered not going to Bible study because of sin? When asked for prayer requests, kept kept the dark places hidden. You've forgotten that with God is forgiveness. Full redemption and unfailing love. You do not need to hide what the Lord has said is washed away. Or perhaps the opposite. You're not surprised that you're God's chosen. You've seen the filth of others around you. When you consider closing your eyes and departing this world, the good things you've done come to mind. Church every Sunday, one spouse all my life, lovely children, charity, an unstained life. You're in the depths. For should God keep a record of sins, no man could stand. You cannot add anything to God's work for you. Or you make him to be a liar. For as he says here, or as it says here, he himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. He himself will do it. That is to to say, he will do it. It says it, and so it is. Not he will do a bit, and Israel will do a bit, and teamwork makes the dream work. No, he himself. In other words, by himself, and it's worth saying, for himself. For we are indeed a gift from the Father to the Son. God alone will do it. Like a warrior on a field, when the enemy is rising in number, and all have fleed away, yet one remains, who sets his face like flint, who has a mouth of fire, and a heart of iron. And he pursues the enemy. And he tramples them underfoot. That warrior is Christ. And we are the deserters who turned our backs at the battle. But... Because of his unfailing love and forgiveness, we join him in the spoils of victory. Let us not look to ourselves this morning, but to our victor, our King, the Lord Almighty, in whom is forgiveness, unfailing love, and full redemption. Call on him, wait for him, wherever you find yourself this morning.